Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Local railroad systems were once the primary, if not the exclusive, means of shipping and travel between nearby communities, as well as links to those far away. The California Western Railroad and the Northwestern Pacific Railroad met in Willits in rural Mendocino County in Northern California, about 135 miles north of San Francisco. Virgin old-growth redwood trees were logged in the forests along the 40 miles of track to the coastal town of Fort Bragg. Rail villages, those isolated communities accessible only by train track, prospered and grew. Then came the automobile and trucks. In this edition of Radio Curious, we visit with Richard Jurgensen, president of the Mendocino County Railroad Society, about the history of the California Western and the Northwestern Pacific Railroads and what their presence did and can do in the future. Richard Jurgensen is also the co-author of How to Build with Grid Beam, a fast, easy, and affordable system for constructing almost anything. Among a small portion of his vast collection of maps, books, histories, posters, and other memorabilia laid throughout his home in Willits, California for our visit, Richard Jurgensen shared a small part of this story on January 20th, 2013. of what used to be three rail lines. Um, currently, only one of those is in use today, and that is seasonal. Uh, Willits operates passenger train service seven months out of the year through 40 miles of pristine redwood forest land. There's no railroad connection between Willits and uh, the south, north, the bays north of San Francisco that's operating now. That's correct. Back in 1998, uh, there was a particularly severe storm, and many washouts occurred, and the uh, Federal Rail Authority shut the line down, and it hasn't recently been reopened uh, until about a year ago, and that's uh, even further south in Mendocino County, but repairs are ongoing even as we speak. So what are the possibilities of extending the railroad in this uh, community, west and south and within the community? Um, those possibilities are very good. Uh, the railroad to the south is called the NWP, North Pacific, um, Northwestern, Northwestern Pacific. Pacific Railroad, uh, is, is uh, governed by the North Coast Rail Authority. And uh, they are charged with um, overseeing the use of the track from Arcata Bay to San Francisco Bay, which is about 300 miles of rail line and properties adjacent to the line. It's a rather massive project. But the focus currently is from Willett South. And to be more specific, uh, the uh, Marin County is where uh, most of the monies are being spent right now for the uh, rehabilitation of the line. So if the line is rehabilitated, how will it change things? Well, first, it's going to get a lot of people out of their automobiles down in Marin County. And they have definitely reached gridlock um, on their morning and evening commute. So 
getting people out of their cars is always a difficult challenge, but there won't be any excuses anymore. Uh, so folks can go to various stations and uh, park the car, get on the train and typically head down to the Bay Area and get on the ferry boat and take it across the Bay to San Francisco. Well, maybe we can start <clears throat> with uh, the end goal being going by train from Fort Bragg and Mendocino County to the San Francisco Bay. And to do that, we would have to cross from uh, the coast to central Mendocino County on, on the California Western Railroad. And there's a poster here, hand-drawn, that looks like it's celebrating 100 years of the Northwestern Pacific. Can you tell us a brief history of the California and Western Railroad? The year was 1885 when Charles Johnson founded the Fort Bragg Railroad Lumber Company. He was quite the innovator and he introduced bandsaws and locomotives, which previously had never been used in the forests of Northern California. Uh, around about 1904, uh, when after about uh, 10 or 12 miles of line had been put in, passenger use began to service the, uh, the line to the various logging camps and a couple of bars and hotels along the line. Did the line begin in Fort Bragg on the coast or inland here in Willits? Uh, that's correct, Barry. It started in Fort Bragg. Once again, uh, Charles Johnson was an incredible innovator. He is also credited, credited with founding the city of Fort Bragg, um, creating a lot of jobs and commerce. In 1905, the name was changed from the Fort Bragg Railroad to the California Western Railroad and Navigation Company. Let me stop you there for a minute, um, Richard. And one of the reasons that the California Western Railroad was established was because of the huge redwood trees. Can you elaborate on that for us? Yes. Previous to Charles' arrival, there, it was virtually unseen by the forest, by the logging community. And he came from Michigan, which was uh, a large uh, uh, timber resource-based uh, uh, livelihood. And he'd heard of the big trees out here, as many people had. And he came west and arrived in uh, the Fort Bragg region by uh, stagecoach, a very arduous journey back then. It's the only way you could get in or by steam schooner, and he came in by stagecoach, and uh, upon seeing the trees that were, you know, 15, 20, 30 feet diameter, uh, the rest is history, and he began uh, getting funding to set up his mill, and uh, arranging for partners, and ultimately building a rail line that extended 40 miles into the interior to uh, uh, Willis, California which was at that time connected up by the Northwestern Pacific Railroad going down to the San Francisco Bay. That's correct. The, by the time the uh, California Western train had first arrived in Willits, the year was 1911, a special excursion train loaded with Fort Bragg residents arrived in Willits, and the uh, headlines of the uh, Willits newspaper that day read, the city of destiny now linked to Fort Bragg by bands of steel and friendship. And a, the town of Willits was there at the depot to greet this train. It was a momentous occasion. 
This is the first time that people from Fort Bragg could come over to Willits and either go north to Eureka on the NWP main line or south to the Bay Area and points beyond without having to get on a, a schooner a steamship or a stagecoach, which was a very difficult and hard ride. And this was in, uh, well, I, um, the newspaper that you're quoting from um, is dated December 23rd, 1911, and it shows photos of what happened four days before when that first train arrived here in Willits. The California Western is called the Skunk Train. Can you tell us why? The, uh, the term came about because once the railroad had shifted from um, the, the large steam engines down to smaller passenger carrying motor cars, the motor cars was using a different type of engine, which was a diesel engine, and the exhaust that was created from uh, burning the fuel wafted through the forest and because the line is so curvaceous, people upwind could smell the train before they would actually see or hear the train because of the smell of the diesel. And the term skunk is still with us 100 years later. By curvaceous, you mean switchbacks? Yes, incredibly switchback. It's uh, one of its nicknames is the curviest railroad in the world. When riding that railroad, what does one see? We've talked about the trees that are 20 to 30 feet in diameter, or that were 100 years ago, and now they're gone, except in very few uh, places here in Northern California. It's a wonderful journey. Uh, you traverse waterways, creeks, depending on what season you're riding, there can be uh, uh, mini waterfalls, uh, depending on, again, what time of year you're riding, if the train does stop. Uh, there are uh, pools where you'll see uh, fishermen uh, fishing for salmon. It is the headwaters of the Noyo River, which is where uh, the city of Fort Bragg gets its drinking water. Uh, so there's um, spotted owl habitat, uh, bears. Uh, virtually every time I've ridden the train, I see deer. A lot of wildlife. It's just uh, abundant in, in that. Ferns. It's a dense rainforest, so it's a very... Uh, overgrown and uh, very, very green, and uh, it, it engages your senses when you ride it. It's a wonderful experience. Well, Richard Jurgensen, I would like to have you tell us about the concept of rail villages. But first, I want to say that we're visiting in Willits, California, in the home of Richard Jurgensen, among posters and pictures and magazines and books and literature about trains and other activities here in Willits, California. This is Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Um, Richard, the concept of rail villages, what are they? Rail villages is really revisiting our past. The railroad is what basically built the West. This is how many of our communities have been built along rail corridors. And unfortunately, we're not uh, laying track anymore except in, uh, in replacing, but... Uh, traditionally, uh, the large communities were terminuses and workstations for the, uh, the railroads that were, that were all moving west. This is where the resource base was. And the west was the resource base. Correct. Uh, we had the timberland. Uh, we had the minerals. Uh, we hadn't been 
extracted or exported yet. So um, the West was the target, and uh, indeed, indeed the population came, and uh, including myself. I'm a relative new settler here. I didn't get here until the late 70s, but of course, as soon as I did, I started riding the trains because uh, that's, that was one of the lures for me. But the, the rail villages are, we have in Mendocino County approximately 100 miles of rail line. And we have within our means uh, the ability to produce our own fuel to get us around our county and even to get further south, utilizing solar panels, batteries, hydrogen, biomass. There's any number of means of creating our own electrical power without relying on uh, uh, petroleum. Uh, but again, back to the 100 miles, if we were to, if we were to develop along this rail corridor without putting in the, the incredibly expensive and damaging infrastructure that automobiles bring, culverts and roads and parking lots and runoff and many things that I can't even think of this, this quick, uh, and instead miniaturize the way that this country used to be with small villages and towns. We could re-inhabit our county in a way that we haven't seen before other than perhaps 100 years ago. If you look at the old maps, you will see station stops approximately a day's walk or horse ride from village to village. That's how the rail line originally was laid out. Uh, of course, the automobile changed all of that. When you talk about our county, Mendocino County, do you see it? as different from other counties uh, in the United States or in other parts of the world in terms of setting up this kind of um, resettlement, if you will? I believe that what we do here could easily be replicated anywhere. And I'm just trying to keep my eyes on the prize here and focus down on Mendocino County because this is where I am. But whatever we do here, I believe, if we're doing it right, can, can be replicated. Richard, can you tell us about the community of Alpine that was uh, accessed by the California and Western Railroad? Yes, Barry, back in the teens, um, there was a community that built up uh, that had a, a population of about 1,200 people. They even had a post office, their own bars, schooling. Um, unfortunately, uh, there was a forest fire and the whole town burned to the ground in 1919, never to be rebuilt. But there were many destination points along the rail line. That just happened to be the largest one. There were many villages along the line. And the railroad brought the mail. The skunk train had the last regularly scheduled mail service in the United States. And when did it stop? Fifteen years ago. Richard Jurgensen, pausing for a moment and looking around your living room with the posters and the maps and the memorabilia that uh, I've mentioned that you've gathered, I heard you describe this as a lot of broken dreams. What were the dreams that were broken? We were promised and delivered the world's best transit system back when this infrastructure was put in place in the 20s and 30s and 40s. The 1920s. That's correct. In this country, we had it all, including here in Northern California. And 
systematically back in the 20s and 30s, a conspiracy was created that was wildly successful. And basically, it's very well documented in a book and in a film called Taken for a Ride, brilliant documentary. And it shows how General Motors, along with Firestone and a few other large corporations that were emerging at the time, started buying up short-line railroads in cities like Los Angeles, Seattle, Denver, Boston, etc., around the country. And they started cutting back service and slowly introducing buses. Ultimately, once people were on the buses, they tore up the tracks. Then they started cutting back bus service and really began pushing the sale of private transportation, i.e. the automobile. Now the tracks are gone. We've got crummy bus service and everybody's stuck in an automobile. And the right-of-ways have been paved over and it's gone, never to be returned. There are only a few visionary cities that were able to hang on to what they had, San Francisco being the best of my knowledge. Everything is still operational and in place. Is the history that you have just uh, shared with us uh, representative of a specific economic goal over time? Most definitely. <laughs> Profit. The people are the ones that lost out on this proposition. We got sold a bad bill of goods because now more than ever we desperately need mass transit with peak oil looming on the horizon. Costs of goods everywhere are going up because we are a petroleum-based economy. As goes the price of oil, so goes the cost of all consumer goods. And we are entering a time of, I believe, great hardship. And how do you suggest in, in your 62 years of experience that our culture uh, can survive? For instance, the, the average automobile driver spends about $8,000 a year in insurance, fuel, maintenance, and affiliated costs with maintaining licensing, registering, things of that sort. $8,000 a year. In a time such as we are entering, this transitional period, that $8,000 could go a long ways if we were involved in sharing transportation needs. That, that could mean shared neighborhood electric vehicles. That could mean walking much more, which creates a healthy community. Um, $8,000 is, is a lot of money in, in this time and age. Uh, and if we, can, if we can avert that by, um, by sharing vehicles, by riding trains, if we had trains to ride, uh, that could be very significant savings. Richard Jurgensen, looking out the bay window in the dining room of your home, I see an electric car. What's the concept that you have in developing electric car use? Pretty much it's, uh, it's, it's shared transportation. That's the concept. That's the idea. So that uh, it's jointly owned rather than one person per car times 8,000 times the number of cars per family. Exactly. Although we haven't implemented that yet, we're just getting off the ground, but we have to uh, walk or 
or show our talk before we get other people to uh, to buy into this. But we've been using this now for about the last two years. Generated a lot of interest in our neighborhood and community. The top speed on the vehicle is about 25 miles an hour, so we can go do all of our shopping, run errands, post office, go to the movie, whatever. It's street legal, and the build-out on this would be to share to have shared neighborhood electric vehicles where we all chip in a little bit. Somebody does a maintenance on it. Uh, it's powered by the sun, so our our only replacement costs really are batteries uh, every couple of years. And this is how we start to save money is by cutting back on our fossil fuel uses. Richard, you have taken the electric car concept uh, to something that you call the Soul Train. The Soul Train is a name that my brother Phil and I gave to a vehicle that we made back in 1990 that runs on electricity. We took the solar panels off of the roof of his house, mounted them on an aluminum frame that we had created out of a product that we manufacture called Gridbeam. We mounted some deep cycle batteries inside the chassis with a 20 horsepower electric motor and we got permission from the California Western Railroad to operate it from Fort Bragg to Willits in 1992 as part of a solar energy fair that we were having here called SEER, Solar Energy Expo and Rally. We ran successfully that day and it was quite possibly the most exhilarating afternoon of my life to ride in something of my own creation on train tracks. It, it changed my life. You mentioned that you built the Soul Train out of grid beam. What is grid beam? Grid beam is like a life-size erector kit. A lot of people use that analogy, so I'll, I'll use it as well. The erector sets that we played with, uh, the, some of us played with when we were younger. That's correct. Uh, those were made out of punched aluminum with repeating hole patterns in the flat struts and with tiny little nuts and screws you could you could make cranes and machines and structures and so forth and, and rebuild them thousands of times. Well, we also grew up with a, a rector or a mechano and uh, we didn't stop playing, uh, which is lucky for us. Uh, we were turned on to a, a technology in the early 70s by a gentleman named Ken Isaacs that showed us how we could build using simple two-by-twos, or actually those are inch-and-a-half by inch-and-a-half by today's wood standards. And we figured out that if we used a repeating hole pattern that matches the width of the stock that we are drilling, we could make a universal building beam, and we happen to call it grid beam. And with it, we made that soul train back in 1992 using aluminum beams. We have since used those beams in many other projects many times and will continue doing so for the life of the product. We also manufacture grid beams in wood and we're making kits and furniture and structures. We like to say if you can imagine it, you can build it. That's a pretty broad scope. If you can imagine it, you can build it. Um, let's step in here, if we may, into uh, your personal office off the kitchen of your home. And could you describe how you have used grid beam to look like a, a storage shelf of where you have uh, a lot of your business papers? 
I need to see things, so I, I can't file them away in a filing cabinet, so I needed to make many, many shelves. So fortunately, I had a pile of grid beams around, and I started putting it together how I thought I might want it, and uh, usually after playing with it for a few minutes, you kind of feel like where you want to go with it, and in very short order, you arrive at something that you're happy with. And if you're not, you've either counted your holes wrong and put the nut and bolt in the wrong hole, or you just need to rethink it. But uh, generally, you get to where you want to be incredibly fast so that you can get on with other things. It's a fantastic prototyping tool. Well, what you have here is a shelf. It looks like a big bookshelf of different heights, so you can have different sized boxes. You mentioned uh, that you can make furniture out of it as well. Yeah, this happens to be a little workstation, and I have these little casters that I found that fit perfectly in the holes. Every time you come across a hole is a new possibility, a new point of departure. So you can either put something in there, either a nut and a bolt, or a caster, or uh, various shelves that plug in and out. It's just a uh, wonderful, life-changing thing. Well, Richard Jurgensen, speaking of wonderful, life-changing things, can you tell us about an aha or eureka moment that shaped your life? That moment would have to be riding the soul train on its maiden voyage. I can still be there very quickly. Uh, in my mind's eye, uh, it was a powerful thing to be moving along the tracks on sunshine and stored electricity in the batteries. And it was something that was out of mine and my partner's hands and minds that we were uh, enabled to do this by. And uh, it was very powerful. Fortunately, it took a couple hours, so I was able to uh, go pretty deep in that feeling that afternoon. And it has stuck with me today. And it has empowered me to believe that if I can make a rail vehicle, what's next? What can't I do? Well, I guess that's the next question. What would you like to do with the remainder of your one precious life? I would love to see the concept and actualization of rail villages become a reality. I would love to catch up with European standards of transportation and be able to get on a train here in Willits, for instance, and, and go to Hopland or Santa Rosa, or better yet, the Bay Area. And for our listeners from afar, Hopland is about 35 miles from Willits. Santa Rosa is about 65, and San Francisco is about 105. Richard Jurgensen, is there a book that you could recommend or a movie that you could recommend to our listeners? Definitely, I would wholeheartedly recommend A Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole. He was awarded the Pulitzer posthumously. Richard Jurgensen, thank you for being with us in your home on Radio Curious. It's been a pleasure, Barry. Thank you very much. Richard Jurgensen is the president of the Mendocino County Railroad Society and the co-author of how to Build with Grid Beam, a fast, easy, and affordable system for constructing almost anything. Over the years, he has gathered a vast collection of maps, books, histories, posters, and other memorabilia about the local railroad system in Mendocino County 
in rural Northern California. This interview was recorded in his home in Willits, California on January 20th, 2013. The book he recommends is A Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole. Over 400 Radio Curious programs may be found on our website, radiocurious.org. They're free as my gift to you. I hope you enjoy them. Our address is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. The phone is 707-462-6541. And email is curious at radiocurious.org. Christina Onestead is our assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.